0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. I hope that you had an opportunity to get some rest over the weekend, and I hope that uh, you paid homage to those and remembrance to those who are no longer with us. Um, We know that this past weekend was September 11th, which is, of course, a day that will live in infamy for the United States. Many people uh, lost their lives in the direct impact of 9-11, but also um, in the following years of 9-11. So we want to um, remember those who are no longer with us, whose lives were taken. Um, And I don't know about you, but there's not... There's very few people I know that were around during that time that were not in some way, shape, or or form affected by 9-11. I had uh, three relatives that were in New York City at the time. Um, <clears throat> one of them was walking back to his studio when he saw it, and he just turned and, and ran the other way. And then I had two relatives that were actually in Tower Number 2, um, they were working there. And uh, when they saw the plane hit Tower 1, both of them, husband and wife, immediately left their desk and ran out of their building, Tower 2. And as they were exiting Tower 2 from having run several flights down, they saw the plane, the next plane hit Tower 2. So I am immensely thankful that their gut instinct told them to not wait um, to see what was going to happen next, but to do what they could to move themselves to a place of safety. I know that that is something that they will never forget um, because they lost co-workers in Tower 2. So, just want to take a moment to reflect on that. And again, I hope that you have had some time to reflect on that based out of your own experience. Today is Monday Motivation. And today we're going to be looking at a book that is becoming uh, very important and very dear to a subject in my life. And that is um, Black Farming. Um, My family is connected to... I would say the percentage of farms that are still left in the United States that are owned by black farmers. So there's about two percent, two percent of farmland um, is still owned by black farmers. It was quite a bit more than that. Um, but my family thankfully has managed to hold on to our farmland and not without a fight so as we are going through and um, dealing with our family history thinking about the future and what we want the process of preserving our land to look like um, I came across this book called We Are Each Other's Harvest. This is written by Natalie Bazil, author of Queen Sugar which we know became a hit television series that I believe is in its final season. I have not seen Queen Sugar because I don't have the, I don't think I have the channels to see it. (laughs) Um, I don't really watch TV that much. And so, um, I don't think I have the system that you can watch, um, Queen Sugar on, but When I saw that she had um, written about the African-American farmers, their land and their legacy, I did reach out to her via IG. That's the beautiful thing about social media now is you can, in some ways, um, access people that you might not have been able to access in the past. And I began to uh, just share a little bit online about our family legacy. And she, you know, said that, hey, maybe in the future. They might be doing. She might be doing a part two to this, and she might be able to include our family. So uh, here's the book. We are each other's harvest, celebrating African American farmers, land, and legacy. And this book is. It's a historical account of several black farms all across the country, but it's also, to me, sort of a love letter, a labor of love, dealing with um, just black farms in general. So I wanted to read one of the tributes that's in here. And this one is called everyone beneath their own vine and fig tree, a remembering in seven parts by Michael Twitty. But I do want to give you the synopsis of this book, just in case, um, you're interested in getting it for yourself. It reads, In the early decades following enslavement, there were nearly 1 million black farmers. Today, there are just 45,000 having lost 14 million acres of land. Black farming informs crucial aspects of American culture, strengthening the family, binding our national identity to the land, and healing our communities with food, empowerment, and self-determination. However, this legacy has been at risk for decades. And Black farmers continue to contend with discrimination from the United States Department of Agriculture and land loss due to the informal passing of land from generation to generation. As national conversations on reparations reach a high, African Americans' contributions to agriculture become central to addressing economic disparity, food justice, climate change, and intergenerational wealth. Natalie Bazile offers an outstanding vantage of these subjects in this chorus of essays, poems, photographs, quotes, conversations, and first-person stories that reveal a long, rich agricultural history of Black people and their connection to American land from emancipation to today. She reminds us that land, well-earned and fiercely protected, transcends history and signifies a home that can be tended, tilled, and passed to succeeding generations with pride. I am very thankful for um uh, my generations right now who are guardians over the land because I've been able to um learn a lot more about my great grandfather. I've been able to learn <clears throat> about the fight to maintain our land um not just from as this book talks about governmental forces but also um from the clan. There were clan raids in the region, uh, in which my family's farm is, and my great-grandfather taught his children how to shoot (laughs) because these, these clans members, they would come into the property, they would oftentimes pull out the father or the sons from a home, and they would lynch them, and then, you know, in fear or whatever, the rest of the family members would pack up and leave, and that property would be taken over many times by, um, you know, clan members. And so we I don't know if there's necessarily a book that accounts for how much land loss was just basically due to raids and, and murder and just stealing people's property right out from under them. We know that a lot of that happened in what they in what is called the Deep South, but it also happened in North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, and so I got a chance to, um, talk with my relatives who were telling me about one time that the Klan actually did come to, um, my family's door and they came looking for my great grandfather. Now the relative that told me, you know, said that the relative who answered the door, one of her sisters did not know who these people were. And so she didn't tell my great-grandfather who was at the door. She just said, you know, there's somebody at the door. And my great-grandfather, when he came to the door, he didn't open the door. Because probably had he opened the door, we'd be having a different, we'd be telling a different story. But because he didn't open the door and the person on the other side didn't respond to him, even though his daughter saw him, He said, I'm going to give you a few seconds to say who you are. And if you don't say who you are, there's going to be, you know, I have my gun. And when my great grandfather said that, that person took off down the road because he did not want to be confronted with an armed black man. So I guess that tells you a little bit how I feel about the Second Amendment, right? So, you know, that was just one of the, you know, things from my relative standpoint of we had a a actual Klan encounter on our grounds and, you know, they were coming to get my great grandfather who had, he was armed and he had enough sense not to open the door to respond to them. Um, another time in that same area, there was a major clan raid <clears throat> and the black people of that particular county, and this is recorded history, and the Lumbee Indians joined forces against clan raids that were happening um, in the region. And again, as I said, my great grandfather taught his daughters and sons how to shoot. And one of the things that he said was, You know, if they come on this property, I'm going to I'm going to keep shooting until I go down. And if I go down, I need the next one of y'all to run out here and you start shooting until you go down. Then the next one comes out and you start shooting until you go down. Then the next one comes out and you start shooting until you go down. So he actually had, you know, a system of defense with his 12 children. one of them being my grandmother, of he had a plan to defend the land against these raids that were happening. And, you know, one of the things that I look at in terms of our our present generation, I know this is Motivation Monday, so hopefully it's motivating you to think about what plan do you have in place for your family and your protection. So I know, you know, in our current modern day times, You know, we think about the things that we can pass on legacy-wise to our children. One of the most important things you can pass on legacy-wise is the story of you, the story of your family, um, the story of how you all came to be, the story of why you have what you have, the story of how you acquired what you acquired, and the fight that you have been a part of in order to keep what it is that you have. Um, One of the things that I, I admire about the scriptures in terms of people like King David, right? David did not leave this earth without telling his son Solomon, I have enemies. Here are their names. Here's what you need to be aware of. Here's what you need to watch out for. And I think more of those conversations definitely should be had in the black community our children need to understand how we got to where we are what fights we've had to endure who were our enemies and are still our enemies to our freedom and what you need to do in order to protect yourself in the future once this generation passes on um you know being able to to know that this land that we have, you know, it's in terms of my family, that it didn't just come to them, right? They had to labor for it. My great-grandparents were sharecroppers, and they bought their, um, most of their land they bought from the owner that they were sharecropping from. Part of the land they bought from fellow Native Americans, um, in the community they were willing to sell my great grandfather five of his acres so you know we have a record that no my family didn't just come in and take indigenous land we actually paid for it (laughs) um so things like that right and then understanding that because this is a part of your legacy you have a responsibility to teach that legacy. You have a responsibility to protect your legacy. You have a responsibility to fight for and maintain what it is that has been gifted to your hands. So here we are in terms of my generations, um, over a hundred years now, we still have that property. A lot of people cannot say that as we read we started out with 1 million black farmers, and we're down to about 45,000 black farmers in this country through theft, through robbery, through clan raids, through um, government overreach. So, again, this book is called We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African American farmers' land and legacy. And it is the story. It's sharing some of the stories of black farmers across the country. So I want to read Michael Twitty's words. Michael Twitty is a cook, um, and I believe I have his cookbook here somewhere as well. He has a, a cookbook that's really dealing with southern dishes, and in that cookbook it's southern dishes, but in, he also goes into the history of the food. He says, this is a remembering. On the land we wrote in seed, a coded language centered in the archive of hidden knowledge, planted in the soul of each and every African who managed to arrive alive on these shores. On earth, in water, and in sky, we pass from one generational era to the next in incredible lore, ancient yet new. We knew which trees were elevators of spirit, which soil enriched our blood, what water stood between us and the dead, and which constellations had the power to emancipate. The music of the universe and the dance steps it dictates were birthrights, not mysteries. We were forced, coerced, into not only raising a nation from its infancy, but walking the Atlantic world into modernity, leaving behind what blood we hoped we would not miss this is a remembering one day there will be no one who remembers or who lived the life of those who left bondage and went into freedom with a dream and a plow there will be a permanent amnesia before freedom came some of us ran away to survive we dreamed of a boat ride back to guinea a red carpet to respond to the red flag that brought us some made it some went north to canada and put tobacco in the ground just out of reach of a killing frost. Some went south and east to the islands and cast a net. Others went southwest and herded cattle with hides as varied as blossoms and fingerprints. Many without choice stayed through the worst years of the slavery. The nightmare ended in a hail of blood. The day of Jubilee arrived in five acts. 1862 to 1863 to 1864... To the surrender to Juneteenth, the day of liberation did come winding its way from autumn to summer, chains rusted and broke. The people I celebrate who occupied the land between slavery and civil rights splashed on Florida water cologne and crushed dark bricks for blush because no makeup existed for them. They chose their children's names by Bible prophecy or by season or by day of the week. Planting and harvest were the birth rhythms. They resisted white supremacy by making irresistible music genres and food and words and dances. Their doors were painted haint blue to keep the evil off. Their grandparents were the antebellums. They had hog bladders for firecrackers. Names were play, were based on whispers from Africa. Jesus wasn't official and spirits in the trees weren't obsolete. Cotton, tobacco, rice, and sugar defined life, but not for their own sake. They fought and prayed in ways too subtle for us to appreciate. They paid an enormous price for our freedom. Their great-grandparents were the African exiles. They were America before America. They brought the light of the supposed dark continent. They seeded a civilization with other untouchables. They left treasure maps in words, ingredients, DNA, names, and talk of pots silencing laughs. Their great-grandparents were the last generation to be untouched. They only knew gods that looked like their reflection in the streams. They dreamed their children into the cosmos. They understood the language of the dwarves in the rainforest. They did not fear death. They were free. No book or page will do the trick. All the voices will be gone. We will lose more than we know. We will lose the knowledge of who was where, what seeds they planted, What animals they raised, how they made a life from no life, how they made a set of rules meant to kill them into seeds of change, how they made bricks, how they made mortar, how they made churches and praise houses and big houses and outhouses and grape arbors and peach orchards, wells and digger gourds, tobacco barns and headstones and porches and swings and life from no life. Like the generations before them who knew different fates, a book will be closed on a certain people. These were the children of Jim Crow's time, a people who built their lives out of the red clay dust and muck of loam and gritty sand. They are dwindling, and we, those who remember the shadows of their ways, are dwindling. We scramble to remember faces and early photographs. We go to courthouses to see which graves are under which mall or gated development or gas station. We work because we know the night is coming and someone needs to have a light. This is a remembering. Now is the time to remember. We've already begun to forget. The plows are gone. The millions of acres have shrunk. We wax nostalgic about they, they used to, they never weep. Take your finger, place it on the Mason-Dixon line and start to trace your way back. Let your digits get wet in the brackish tides of Chesapeake Bay. Go to the appendages of land sticking out into the water, the place where it all began. All of this inherited strife. Go against the Piedmont spine. Feel the tops of the pines and oaks. Dip down into the clay and soil your fingers with the iron within. Move down the coastal line and mash yourself into the sand. Dance over to the loam, the black belt, the long, rich belt, where once an ancient sea stood and Yamanja swayed while her lullaby babies became fish. Push toward the Mississippi out against more mountains down to the bayous, in melting coastline this borrowed place now partly made of your ancestors is your old country some of us were sharecroppers others tenants but many were landowners everyone saw themselves as living a verse of bible beneath their vine or fig tree here we waited for the good times prayed against the inevitable bad on mattresses of corn husk or spanish moss we planted the next generation in the bottoms, we planted sweet potatoes and melons, but where the land would not yield, we planted the bodies that became the ancestors. Before Georgia, there was Guinea. There were dawns that went back to the very beginning of time. Just before our leaving, the dawns were the same as they were after we left. Two hours before light came the first crowning. Then came the barking of dogs and prayers carried up in circles in the sparking of fires, in the sound of the mortar and pestle, giving the day its heartbeat. When we danced, we moved according to the tasks of the field and the farm. We began to live with the seasons and master the patterns of mounding earth, carving the land into plots, shifting earth for rice paddies, singing songs to the dry time, making sun by string instrument, letting our songs drip in alternating patterns until our souls were soaked when the rains came. We knew every tree, mushroom, fruit, and their uses. We had middens and used ashes, chicken, and goat manure to keep the ancient soil fertile from year to year. Over millennia, we practiced to near perfection the art of living on and with the land. We, the Fulani, ranged our cattle. We, the Congo, climbed the Rafia Palm. We, the Asante and Igbo, brought yams out of the earth. We, the Mende and Timne, threshed rice. And we, the bozo, set our nets out on the Niger. We fed ourselves and made a life to dance by. From the gardens and our fields came the, our groaning tables. Springtime brought mustard and turnip greens and rabbits and young chickens to be fried, shad in some rivers and herring in others. There were dandelion greens, lamb's quarters, and poke salad, and they would clean you out from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Crawfish came out of hiding, and our plates were filled. Late spring brought new potatoes and green onions. Summertime was what everyone waited for. Supper on the ground in the summer meant lemonade and iced tea, sometimes with mint punches and shrubs made from crushed berries. Tomatoes and bell and hot peppers, cantaloupes and watermelons, fresh field peas and more potatoes. We had potato salad, fried chicken, deviled eggs, coleslaw, skillet cooked squash, and rice a thousand ways. Blue crab time became barbecue time, and with it green corn time, until the harvest of the crops in corn and sweet potatoes brought their own glories. Winter moved us from hog killing time to the oyster months, and possum and yams, turkeys, venison. Dried field peas, cabbages and turnips, and sweet potatoes in banks, jars of put up spring and summer produce. This is what got us through the winter. Remember the orchard? Clingstone peaches, chicksaw plums, stamen wine saps, and secco pears planted when we first knew freedom. Life giving, sustaining fruit. Those vines in the grape arbor were muscadines and scuppernongs and fox grapes that your great great grandmother put the good store bought lugger- sugar loaf to so she could make the communion wine. Nobody ate the fruit off the tree without threats of sickness. Once the summer treats of cobblers, and the fall treats of pies were made, crops and jars formed a rainbow in the pantry. A few cloves here, broken cinnamon sticks there, all spice, nutmeg, bits and pieces of worlds they would never see. My great grandfather planted forked sticks in the soil, said a prayer, thrust it in the ground at a crossroads, didn't look back. In his time, when you found an Indian arrowhead, You said it came from thunder in the sky and put it around your neck to keep from being lynched. These were the men who threw seeds and paths to guarantee a healthy newborn. These were the women who chose names by divination from the scriptures. These were the ancestors with pockets filled with cottontail feet. John the Conqueror Root and the Good Witch Hands of Sassafras. Their necks were strung with asafetida bags to keep off sickness. They pierced dimes to hide them from the evil eye. They smelled of crushed basil planted by the front door to keep the devil and the men without skins away. The injustice was ugly, but the fields were gorgeous. Nobody hated green. Ever seen a field of pretty tobacco? sap swollen leaves masquerading faintly of mint on a hot Maryland or Virginia or Carolina afternoon? When cotton was in blossom, The flowers would be born and die in the same day, changing colors like costumes, until the bud was left that would become, in time, a ball in everything from Carolina to Tennessee to Texas, new snow in boiling heat. Rice fields had a shimmering green and later a golden husk that battled birds for survival, and cane grew as tall as the tallest man could not grow down in Louisiana, Georgia, and Florida, promising syrup and liquor after the rest of the crop was sold. From our homesteads in Oklahoma and Kansas to our cabins in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, we knew how to take care of each other. That was the number one dictate of the land. Love the others on it just as you love the land and those who gave it to you in trust. Our values were there to work and celebrate cooperatively, to have humor when it felt like there was none to decorate our lives with the love we never received outside. In our spaces, we were father, not boy, mother, not gal, elder, not uncle or aunt. We took the labels off of racist products. We made a world in our image. From our image, we knew our creator. Michael Twitty. Lots more powerful, powerful readings in this book, which I will definitely be coming back to to share with you all. Um, he mentioned so much, so many uh, visual pictures that if you grew up in the South or you grew up in the country or you even still have your elders who cook some of those things that he mentioned, so many um, pictures and images began to come to my mind. Um, I remember my grandmother canning peaches and she would have hundreds of jars and she would, I remember her passing them out to her daughters, my aunts. Um, They would often come to her home and, you know, grab a couple of cans of peaches. Um, Another image that he said in there, let me go back really quick he started talking about all this food (laughs) potato salad check fried chicken definitely check deviled eggs check check coleslaw check uh and rice cooked a thousand ways rice cooked a thousand ways all of that brings back food and how much of our community right how much of our um communal sort of feeling and being, even now, relates back to the food that we ate, the food that our ancestors ate. You know, there's often this joke now in the Black community that, you know, you're not one of us unless you are invited to the cookout. And cookout invites shouldn't be given very easily, right, to people who do something kind for Black people. It's a whole uh, euphemism now too. How well you are accepted and received by the Black community is connected to what? Food. So, Michael was painting a picture to us about this land. He was painting a picture to us about our traditions. He was painting a picture about not forgetting those things. Because in his words, there may come a time when there is no more memory. But that can only happen if we fail to remember Right. And we fail to pass on what it is that we know about our ancestors and our ancestry. So this is what I want to share with you this morning for my Monday motivation. Please take the time to rehearse your history with your children. Don't just rehearse the good stuff. It was important for me to hear about my great grandfather not giving in to racial terror. Why? Because I'm in a generation now that we have to make sure that we have a level of courage, right? And a level of fortitude to not give into this current round of racial terror. What it also helped me to understand is, again, and I believe it was Coretta Scott King who said it, I could be wrong, but I think she said it first, is that every generation has its own fight. Maybe Coretta, maybe uh, Maya Angela, one or the other. Every generation has its own fight. But we give get strength from our previous generation in what they withstood, and what they did not tolerate. So, again... Teach your previous generations. If you're a young person, and I, when I say young, I'm talking 25 and under. If you're a young person, sit down with your elders. Listen to your elders while they still have a memory. While they can still share with, with sharp clarity about your family history. Because again, it will come a time when their memories aren't as sharp, which means that's going to affect the level of information that they can give to you, that you can receive. So that's my encouragement for this morning. If you would like to come on and respond to what I have shared, feel free to hit the camera button and I will bring you on and let you respond. For those of you who are listening by podcast, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so we encourage you to continue to go out and be light. Tomorrow, we'll be back in the book, Black Women, Black Love, and we will be on the Black Table Talk Facebook page, so make sure you look for us there. Take care and be blessed.